Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are going to finish recapping the novella, The Death of Dr. Island, this very long, very complicated novella. And next time, then, that means we're going to have our discussion episode. But The network is going to take off for the holidays here. So we'll be back with that on January 7th. Next week, though, we are going to release our very special Christmas episode. This has become our tradition here to do one of these speculative fiction Christmas stories that Connie Willis writes. We're still going through her collection, Miracle and Other Stories. We did Miracle last year, so now it is time for one of those other stories. And in this case, it is In. And if you are thinking of the In the manger of which Christ was born, you are not wrong. And hey, if you're thinking of Wolf Story La Bufana, that's going to be a part of our discussion for sure. Yeah, I'm really excited for that to come out. Last time, we were left with the realization, the confirmation that Dr. Island provides, which is Nicholas and Diane are both there for the rehabilitation of Ignacio. A lot of other stuff obviously happened in that section, but that's where we left off. Glenn, where are we going? Right. So Nicholas is, is still alone at, at the point. And of course, when we last left him, he was still very hungry, right? This kid has been here for a long time and has not eaten anything. And now, finally, after a walk, he has found Ignacio. Ignacio is at the beach and he's praying. And Nicholas watches him for an hour trying to learn things about Ignacio. We get a great line here when Nicholas thinks that, in his experience, people who pray are more interesting than those who don't. I think that's almost certainly Wolf's opinion. But for all this time that he spends observing Ignacio, Nicholas can't even discern to whom Ignacio is praying. He he actually even thinks that Ignacio might be praying to Dr. Island, though he, he rules that out. And then he wonders if Ignacio is praying to himself in some way. That's a bizarre notion. I don't think that's something that would occur to me when I'm watching someone pray. So I'm I'm interested in talking about what that tells us about Nicholas at some point. But here, Nicholas decides to approach Ignacio, or, or really, we should say he decides to get closer to Ignacio. He crosses only about half the distance and then sits down again on the beach. The person who is on the other side of Nicholas's brain, and we didn't really encounter that at all in the last section, this other person who's trapped inside of Nicholas somehow is terrified. And so the left side of Nicholas's body is trembling. And this prompts Nicholas to pray as well. He tells the other person within him not to be afraid and so on, that sort of thing. Even though Nicholas himself knows perfectly well that Ignacio is more likely to attack him again than he is to help him catch some fish. He's kind of like shushing a baby. And Ignacio is fully aware of Nicholas's presence. And when he wades out into the freshwater sea again, he, he motions for Nicholas to join him. And now he actually talks to Nicholas. Ignacio asks him if this place reminds him of some place he's seen before. And when Nicholas doesn't answer, Ignacio announces that he's going to tell a story. This prompts Nicholas to think about how men are always telling stories and women less so. And, and here he's thinking specifically of doctors and psychologists, but He also compares Jesus, who was always telling stories to people, always had a parable up his sleeve, with the Virgin Mary, who was never telling stories to people. And this thought leads Nicholas to notice that Ignacio kind of looks like Jesus, actually. Yeah, obviously this raises the question of what it means that Ignacio is important, and just to who is Ignacio important as well. This connection between Ignacio and Jesus that Nicholas makes in his mind. 
And it's not just to to Jesus, uh, or, or you know, the Messiah here that we're going to get some comparisons to, in terms of classical or mythological or religious imagery between Ignacio and another figure. So I'm going to hold off saying too much about this right now because we'll we'll be able to talk about it a little later. But I think, Glenn, you're right to point out this bit that emphasizes prayer. In learning about Ignacio, we, along with Nicholas, would do well, as, as the narrator suggests, to think about the God conceived by Ignacio. That, that's what interests Nicholas. It's not that people are praying. It's what God are they conceiving of when they pray. And we've already talked in past episodes about how one idea of God is, is as an abstraction of all of society's better values, right? It's just the abstract idea. But for Ignacio to be praying to himself and then being connected with Christ, there's some real Christian senses of God happening here as well. I don't think it's as cut and dry in that. We really should be asking ourselves when we get to the discussion, who indeed Ignacio's God is. And in doing so, we may discover who's Christ or Messiah he is, if he is one at all. Yeah, and that certainly seems to be kind of the heavy-handed indication here. I think it's absolutely fascinating that Nicholas is saying, okay, that guy's praying to somebody. I wonder who he's praying to. And the only options he has are people who are physically present or, or, or known to him in this setting. It's as if he has no ability to think abstractly. Uh, I don't know. It's almost as if he has an object permanence problem or, or something like that. It's a very interesting choice. But we've got other interesting stuff to talk about here, too, right? We've been promised a story by Ignacio. It's an awesome story, so let's hear it. The story is about himself. It's about his life with his family when he was younger, though it's really his pet piranha who is at the center of this story. It's a great one. As Nicholas himself has already puzzled out, Ignacio is from a wealthy family, and he has this high-tech fish tank that is barely visible, and, and this provides the illusion that Ignacio's piranha floats in the air above his dining room table. And I'll just read the rest of the story straight from the text because it's absolutely fantastic. This is one of these stories within the story that Wolf loves to write and always just nails, just executes so well. There was no one in the house but Ignacio and the other and the robots. But each morning, someone would go to the pool and the patio and catch a goldfish for him. Ignacio would see this goldfish there when he came down for breakfast and would think, Brave goldfish, you have been cast to the monster. Will you be the one to destroy him? Destroy him, and you will have his diamond house forever. And then the fish would rush upon the young goldfish, and for an instant, the water would be all clouded with blood. Now, I, I love this story, and I especially love the richness of the details. There, there's just enough here in the background to tell us about Ignacio's family, their station in the world. But we also learn a lot about who Ignacio is, not limited to the fact that he talks about himself in the third person in this story. Right. So much of this story is going to come into clearer focus later on. But at this point, we learn that Ignacio basically grew up alone in a house with robot servants. It's a little bit like number five situation, except with far fewer human interactions, almost maybe no human interactions. And this was obviously not healthy for Ignacio. And it sort of calls to my mind the bit in this story about the therapy robots. You know, people really need to mix with and to get help from other people. And this is something that Wolf is really emphasizing in this story. The societies are built by people's reliance upon one another. One thing that's going on in this story is that Nicholas is 
a little distracted by his own thoughts about Huckleberry Finn while he's listening to this story. And I found that very strange, and I'm not quite sure what to do with it. So I'm just going to move past it. Um, but we might find time for that in the discussion <laughs> to see what what role this literary illusion uh, plays in this story. Also, in my reading, Ignacio is implicitly tied to the piranha in terms of symbolism or imagery. But I'm not sure if that makes Nicholas the goldfish. You know, I, I just think that because Ignacio grew up in this world, in this story within a story, these are kind of the only categories in which he can understand the world in terms of predator and prey. And it's somebody's job to provide him with the prey, and he's going to continue to be a predator. Yeah, and the idea that it, it's somebody's job to do that is really confused in this story, right? The story opens with Ignacio saying that, the, the people in the house were Ignacio, then there were the robots, but he also says there was the other. We don't know who that other is, but he lists all these three people, Ignacio, the other, and the robots. And then he says, but each morning someone would go to the pool and catch this goldfish. But the but there indicates, right, that the someone who's doing that is not in one of the three classes of people that he's mentioned already. So what's going on? This is There's something potentially mystical here. And I think that since we get this story right after we've been reminded of Jesus's parables in the discussion, we might try to unpack this as if it's a parable as well, which I think will be a lot of fun. But as much as I love this story, Nicholas really doesn't. He does not care that much about this story, or at least maybe really, to be fair, we should say that what he cares about is the part that is about eating because he himself is extremely hungry. Ignacio is not hungry and he's done fishing. And he tells Nicholas that he's feeling tired and lazy. And then he adds, if I pursue you, I will not catch you. And if I catch you, I will not kill you. And if I kill you, I will not eat you. Nicholas is understandably afraid of this proclamation. And so he just runs for it. And of course, Ignacio chases him. And Dr. Island tells Nicholas to stop running because it is the running that makes Ignacio angry. Nicholas doesn't stop until he's back in the jungle. Nicholas is still very hungry, and so he thinks about what he could find to eat in the jungle and decides that coconuts are probably a better choice than raw monkey. And so he thinks about how he would get a coconut open. In his mind, the coconut that he is smashing against a rock becomes the head of the girl Maya from his psychodrama group, this girl, this other patient, who is very important in his memory. This is the one whose death he foretold with his ability to see the future. In his imagination, he hears her nose cartilage crack, and he sees her blue eyes, but he can't look into them anymore. And here he even thinks about Lucifer falling, and he remembers Christ saying, I was watching Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Now it occurs to Nicholas that if Lucifer fell, he must have fallen up into the fires and coldness of space, never again to see the warm blues and browns and greens of earth. And this is an absolutely gorgeous line. And, and of course, this notion that Satan's punishment would really have to be exile from the beauty of creation, exile from the world. Uh, this is absolutely fascinating. But all of this is here to let us know that Nicholas isn't imagining smashing Maya's head open like a coconut. I, I, I think he's remembering this. And my inference here is that he murdered Maya. And is that perhaps why he's been sent here? Is, is that what's going on with all of these kind of discombobulated images and memories that he's been having of Maya and that zero-G hospital throughout this story? I'm not sure if he murdered Maya, honestly. In my mind, it is explicitly clear at this point that 
the girl he let bounce around in zero G who got really injured uh, was actually Maya. And he feels terrible about everything. Maybe that bit of trickery and cruelty led to her death, but we don't actually know how Maya died. There is inferences in the story that she died in the zero G environment and maybe she wasn't strapped down. Uh, And it is Diane who says that Maya slit her wrists, though there's no confirmation of that. So your reading is entirely plausible that that he murders Maya, but I I just don't see that being the case. And and when we get to the end of the story, there's a line that really I think is important to understanding the the whole of this Maya detective story that's embedded in the death of Doctor Island. I think mostly he's just really sad that he couldn't help her, and he did harm her and maybe make her worse. Yeah, murder might actually be the wrong word there. I mean, I think I sort of jumped to that thinking about all of his anger and the the other violence. But it may very well be that he kind of innocently unbuckled her as some kind of prank or practical joke, especially if this is something that's very recent. This may be having something to do with being a teenager in this closed environment, that they had some kind of romance going on or something like that, so that it may have been accidental but caused by him. And the only real violence that we see from Nicholas in this story up to this point is that he kills this monkey. So it is possible that all of the violence Nicholas is always claiming to Diane is actually him maybe trying to internalize something, some violence that he did accidentally uh, and uh, trying to lay claim to that in some way as if he's going to become that person now. I think we'll, we'll end up taking this up at greater length in the discussion, I'm sure. It'll be a whole section in the discussion. We'll, we'll cover this uh, thoroughly. We'll, we'll turn this story into a detective story about who <laughs> killed Maya. But, uh, you know, there's also this passage that Nicholas has in mind where he thinks about Jesus saying, I was watching Satan falling like lightning from heaven. And Nicholas here has a total inversion of the heavens and earth and the uh, many spheres and and the whole basically medieval cosmology of the understanding of heaven and earth and why they exist in different planes and hell is beneath earth and all this stuff. And it's it's incredible to me that Wolf has this in mind as as people demystify space. The way these stories are told necessarily requires a sort of updated meaning. And this is the first of maybe two or so instances uh, where this inversion comes up, or Wolf is even correcting Jesus's understanding of the universe in some way in this story. It's fascinating. But as I said, this passage is from is from Luke uh, chapter 10, verse 18. Jesus has sent out the 70 disciples, and they return back astonished that they can cast out demons in Jesus's name. And they're telling Jesus this, and his direct response to their reports is that he says, I was watching Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And this is a really bizarre passage, I think, even for Luke, which isn't really full of the sort of more mystical and strange passages of the Gospels. I really think it has more to do with Wolf updating this cosmology with scientific understanding. And I think that's something that's on his mind a lot. And I think he turns that into thinking about robots with souls. But this idea about God in space, that's something he really thinks about. 
We actually just had this same line from Luke in uh, an issue of The Sandman that uh, Brent and I just talked about over on Hanging Out with the Dream King as well, where it's used in a particularly interesting way. And I always like to point out these kind of connections between Wolf and Neil Gaiman because I like to envision Gene Wolf kind of just talking at Neil Gaiman about whatever he's thinking about, about Bible lines or other other lines from other literature and, and then Gaiman taking them and, and running with him. No idea if that's really what happened, but it was interesting for me to see them both kind of doing this. I don't know. It's, it's, it's all happening for me in the span of about one month. I love the way that you're thinking about the inversion of the cosmology, the sort of Christian cosmology, as we have already been doing in previous episodes and thinking about this story in the context of Wolf writing The Fifth Head of Cerberus. We've got to go back to Dante, too, who is someone who radically challenged the the cosmology about heaven and hell, but hell in particular, and not seeing hell as a hot place as a flaming place, but saying, well, hell is the place that is spiritually furthest from God, from the light of God, and therefore it must be a cold place. Hell must be icy, not flaming. And I think that's the move that Wolf is making here too, right? The idea is that if you're going to be punished by God, that punishment has to be to have been removed from God's presence, and also to be removed from his special creation. And so you wouldn't fall down to that creation, right? You would go away from it. I think that's the same kind of intellectual move that's being made here. I don't know, maybe Wolf is the Dante of science fiction, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, definitely. But we also have this reference to to battling kind of the, the demons of the air on an ebony horse early on in this story uh, we didn't we didn't talk about it but that's there also a reference to like the principalities of air and darkness this this sort of demonic influence uh, the the bible is full of of references to demons having real power on earth and you know the most famous of which is of course job which includes satan returning to heaven after wandering the earth. And and Milton, of course, has Lucifer kicked out of heaven and falling to earth as well. So there's a lot of really challenging imagery here. And we're in the mind of, of a 14-year-old boy, but Wolf is playing with all of this and asking us to think about what is happening with Lucifer, with the adversary, and with Christ in this story. He is bringing these two figures to, to bear on this island. This is going to be so great in the discussion. Well, we've we've invoked Diane a little bit here, too. And finally, she appears now. She's recovered from her catatonic state where we, we left her in the, the last episode. And she and Nicholas now talk about Ignacio. And Diane says that Ignacio grew up all alone in a remote part of Brazil where he lived on a plantation with no one but robots. And, and this is information I think we, we really already had. We get a note here that is straight out of Wolf's story, Ibem, when Diane explains that although the cities of Earth are extremely crowded, the remote countryside is even emptier than it used to be. And, and presumably this is because robots are doing all the agricultural work. So you know, why Ignacio is living in this situation is, is not something we're going to find out about. And this is also where the bird comes back, this bird that we got very early on in the story when Diane tells Nicholas that there's a bird living inside of her. She says that there's a tangled nest in her entrails where the bird sits and tears at her breath with her beak. And then Diane says, I look healthy to you, don't I? But inside I'm hollow and rotten and turning brown, dirt and old feathers oozing away. Her beak will break through soon. 
Nicholas just says, okay, to this information, which I, I laughed at. But then he indicates that he thinks Diane might be really hungry, right? That she's actually starting to lose her mind with it. And here he, he, she's like envisioning her hunger as a bird living inside her. And so he says he'll be back in a bit with a coconut. This is a, a real practical approach to what Diane is saying, a very literal reading of this metaphor. Because this bit about the bird should call to our minds what we learn the first time we meet Diane, which is one that she's eaten a bird and that she thinks of herself only as a memory that has swallowed a bird. Now, uh, a little after we meet Diane, we do encounter an empty bird's nest that has the snake in the tree. And early in the story, we have imagery that links Nicholas to a reptile. And now Diane is maybe as guilt stricken about eating a bird as Nicholas would have been if he had eaten the monkey. But there's something about eating that bird that I think has created real trauma for her that she can't move past. It's something I think we'll have to unpack in the discussion, but we're working still with this representative animal imagery for both of these characters. And I, and I think we'll definitely take a closer look at that. Well, as Nicholas goes off again in search of food, he ponders what he has learned about Ignacio living alone with robots. There are millions of intelligent machines all throughout the solar system doing the work of maintaining human civilization. There are also sophisticated servant robots who are very much like people, but those are a luxury that only the rich can afford. And he assumes that those must not be the types of robots that Ignacio lived with, because that would be like living with people. And if Ignacio had lived with people, then he wouldn't have needed to be sent here. And Nicholas is reminded, too, of his own experience with robots, and we've encountered some of this already. He's had therapy robots, which he despised, and there was a robot that cleaned the corridors of St. John's Hospital, where he was with Maya. Maya had given this robot the name Corridora, even though everyone else just called it Hey when they needed it to, to clean something. And I love how this one detail tells us everything we really need to know about who Maya was. And now Nicholas is thinking about, or really maybe he's imagining, a conversation about robots in which a doctor explains to him about extrinsic and intrinsic motivations and says that it's actually a strength of Freud's psychoanalytic theory that it explains the motivations of both people and machines. I'm not sure I, I buy that. No, I don't think I do either. And I, I don't think Wolf is too hot on psychology or psychiatry, maybe in general. But I think in, at this point, we're meant to see Nicholas communicating with himself somehow. You know, maybe his other hemisphere is speaking to him and he's, and he's gaining the ability to have his brain communicate again with itself. I'm really glad you brought up IBM earlier because this section about robots is really just straight out of... IBEM. It is the exact same type of robot classifications that Wolf has in mind in IBEM. Robots, though, don't really have complex or competing motivations. They're instead programmed to have these basic drives to complete their tasks, but they lack the true complexity of how human motivations function. And this is just kind of a critique of, of Nicholas's own thoughts about what he's thinking about robots, that people and machines have the same source of motivations. And why it would be okay if Ignacio had the right type of robots around, he might be better. Well, there may be only two categories of motivation that Wolf is, is bringing up here in the story. The way multiple motivations factor into and, and compete against each other within our everyday experience has to be different than how these robots are conceived. So they really just, in my mind, they have to lack the requisite humanity that could lift a person, Ignacio, for instance, from a state of hermitude. Uh, he, Ignacio was probably a feral child or something like that. 
Yeah, we're never going to really find out any details, but yeah, it seems like he's just left in this home by his parents who either have died, you know, and he's like being raised as an orphan by a nanny bot or something, or they've gone to this city and just decided not to take their child with them because, you know, that's a burden when you want to party or something, you know, or he was Macaulay Culkin and just got left behind because there were too many kids or something like that. It's a very strange set of circumstances that must have led to this situation. I I wonder, too, here, you know, this conversation about motivations of robots is maybe meant to inform Dr. Island's behavior. That's that's something we'll have to take up as well. But if we're thinking of him as an AI who has a purpose, but also maybe motivations for doing the things that he does, you know, these lines might shed some light on that when we take up that question. Well, at this point, Nicholas returns to Ignacio, and this time Ignacio accepts him, but he makes Nicholas address him as Patrão, which means boss in Ignacio's native Portuguese. It's related to Patre, his father, right? Ignacio explains that he always keeps his fire going because fires are very difficult to start. And he also tells Nicholas that he got his original fire by stealing it from the gods, and specifically from Poseidon, the sea god, who you probably shouldn't have fire because water's wet. And also, Poseidon is now dead at the bottom of the sea. Also, the bottom of the sea is really the top of this world. Anyway, it's time to go fishing now. And we get something like a training montage here when Ignacio teaches Nicholas how to make a spear and how to swim out into the water with it and how to catch fish. We get another gorgeous descriptive passage here when Wolf has Nicholas dive into the deep part of this ocean. And this allows him to see all the way through the water and out the clear shell that contains it and all the way to Jupiter, around which they are orbiting. And this is where Wolf explains to us how this civilization around Jupiter, all of these cities on the moons and asteroids and so on that exist around Jupiter, how they have light and heat and power. It's this feat of human engineering is using silicone enzymes to create a fusion reaction on Jupiter slowly turning this gas giant into a star. And it's not the whole planet yet, but this is where we get this term bright spot earlier in the story. There's a big bright spot where this reaction has begun. Uh, I absolutely love this detail, but there's even more here. Ignacio says it's time for Nicholas to see the dead sea god. And so they dive again. And Ignacio points out a mass of metal that's anchored to the clear shell of the satellite they are in. There's also a six-meter-long legged machine, a a legged god, Nicholas thinks. This is also a great detail with some beautiful imagery, and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what we do with this in the discussion. But Nicholas will later describe this as a damaged robot that was maintaining the cable that tethers Dr. Island to the, the satellite. A uh, big chunk of world building here. Yeah, and it, it really is absolutely fantastic. The first thing I want to point out here is we are explicitly confronted with the association between Ignacio and Prometheus, and with in a strange way, the usurpation, if you will, of Zeus by Poseidon in the little mythology of this island. There's no Mount Olympus. There's only the sea. And so Poseidon was kind of next in line, I think, for uh, <laughs> for, for kingship there. And Poseidon is the one that's left. And it's crazy because Ignacio has killed this god. And we've already mentioned how Ignacio means fire and all of this might work together to help us understand the the type of important person that Ignacio is to become. 
you know, Promethean imagery is, as I've said in, in past episodes here, for the Romantics, tightly bound with Milton's Lucifer. They're, they're really tied up together. You know, we also have this Promethean connection between Ignacio, but we also have the Christ connection here, where Christ also spent a lot of time on water and hung around with fishermen. Christ's approach to fishing trips with his disciples is really different than Ignacio's. <laughs> but, but we have to keep in mind that we're dealing with this reversal imagery where down is up. Lucifer falls up. The bottom of the sea is also the top of the world. And Nicholas ascends at the beginning of this story onto the island from below. And I think we've seen this reversal happen before in a story by John V. Marsh, where Sandwalker descends to the cave where he encounters his destiny and rarely ascends again in the story. There's also more going on here. Nicholas in this section associates himself with a radar scanner, which after all of this talk of robots and given the fact that the narrator associated him with a reptile earlier, might lead us to believe that Nicholas is growing on some point and he's moving upward on the scale of humanity. I also want to point out here that the images that Nicholas sees when he's staring into the blackness of space and on to Jupiter, when he has plunged his face into a dream, which is the, the phrase that Wolf uses here to describe Nicholas looking out of this glass ball, should connect us with Nicholas's own dream of dying. A lot of this imagery is really the same, though what we're supposed to do with this at this point, I'm not sure. We'll see in a moment that Ignacio jokes that they're not ghosts. Also, finally, I just want to connect the insectoid imagery of the machine, uh, the legged god, as as Nicholas points out, to the ant line we saw at the beginning of the story. And, and we'll need to look at the connection of these images to really see if they bear any fruit. Right, because the, the antlion uses tricks to catch its prey, to get what it wants, to fulfill its perhaps both extrinsic and intrinsic motivations, and that, that all might come back here. For now, Nicholas and Ignacio feast on the, the fish that they've collected, and after his own hunger is finally satiated, Nicholas remembers Diane, right? That he, in fact, went off looking for food for her in the first place. Now, he doesn't actually dare take a fish to her because the fish all belong to Ignacio by explicit prior arrangement. But he does think that he can go get Diane and bring her to the fire and to the meal. And so he goes off to get her. Well, she's barely conscious when he locates her, but he does get her to the fire. And Ignacio commands Nicholas to give her the remaining fish. But Nicholas has to feed her himself by hand at first, but eventually Diane is able to take over this job. Ignacio is a real bully. Uh, of course, we knew that already. And he emotionally torments the two of them. He threatens to take Diane's fish from her, uh, really just to see if she'll react to that. And he also says that Diane looks pretty in the fire, though she's too skinny from not eating enough here. Of course, he's the reason she's not been eating enough. And Nicholas's role in this situation, and it's a self-appointed role, his role is to get Diane fed without getting either of them killed. And so he tells Ignacio that he knows that Diane likes him. And of course, like here is in the sense that teenagers use it, right? He says that she's attracted to him. And while Nicholas is playing to Ignacio's vanity, he's recalling Maya's blood. And the juxtaposition of this indicates that Nicholas regrets that Maya died because of him, whether you know it was murder, as I suggested earlier, or just an accident that he caused because of that, right? He's really intent on saving Diane from the, the dangerous jaws here of starvation and murder. Diane is aware that Nicholas is 
basically pimping her out to this violent brute, this violent brute who controls their access to food. But she either accepts this as a survival strategy or she's perhaps just too weak to do anything about it. And she tells Nicholas to go away. Like basically she tells him to go see a movie that she's going to go through with this uh, arrangement that they've all come to without really saying out loud what they're deciding. Right. And it might even be an act of her own agency. We don't know enough about Diane's motivations or desires to know if she is actually okay with this and actually does want Nicholas to leave because she has her own set of motivations that she's acting out on this island. It's certainly the case that she was chosen to participate in this experiment because of something that Dr. Island knows about her. It's not just the polka dots of blood, though, that that Nicholas thinks of as he tells Ignacio that Diane likes him. He's also thinking about the bird inside of Diane that is rotten and hollow and filthy that's kind of just destroying her. And I think that Nicholas really realizes here that he is unable to get the bird out of Diane. You know, we learned from Diane earlier that it can't be drowned with water and it doesn't seem to be satisfied with fish. And here it just represents Nicholas's inability to access the the other desires that are at play between these older people. And, And it might be just that he's too naive to fully comprehend them, but he instinctually understands that there's something inaccessible happening at this point between these people at the story. Well, Nicholas does as he's told, and he he slinks off to another part of the beach to spend the night. And now that he's off by himself, Dr. Island speaks to him. And Nicholas accuses Dr. Island of having used him to get Ignacio and Diane together like this. And Dr. Island does not dispute that claim. Instead, what he does is invoke the psychological experiments that Harry Harlow did on rhesus monkeys from the 1930s through the 1960s. These experiments are highly controversial, but they told us a lot about the social development of young primates, which includes humans, and that's all been valuable to psychology. And I I imagine we'll spend quite a bit of the discussion on this, especially since this is the second time we've had this type of experiment invoked. Uh, But the experiment that Dr. Island wants to talk about specifically is one of Harlow's last experiments. It's one that was conducted in the the late 1950s. This experiment charted the effects of raising monkeys in various amounts of social isolation from birth, uh, really just to see then how they would behave when they finally encountered uh, another creature, and especially another monkey, right? And the answer is not well. And As Wolf has Dr. Island explain it, the isolated monkeys would fight other monkeys and sometimes even kill them. Harlow couldn't even get them to have sex with other monkeys, and ultimately, this became a a focus of Harlow's experiments, right? How do you rehabilitate someone who has lived in isolation? And the solution was kids. When toddler monkeys were put in cages with the isolated monkeys, adult monkeys who'd been isolated, these isolated monkeys at first were violent and abusive, but because the young monkeys needed the isolated monkey, they just kept trying and trying and trying to make contact. And eventually this wore down the isolated monkeys who would then begin to care for these toddlers. And of course, this is precisely what Dr. Island has done, right? He's used Nicholas as a baby monkey to get Ignacio to accept Diane. There are two other things that we should say about this scene. First, we're told that Harlow's experiments were about 800 years ago. So we're probably in 2070 or thereabouts. I don't think we're on pace for this future, I'm afraid. More importantly, Wolf says that the founder of Christianity seems to have had an intuitive grasp on the principle that Harlow's experiments demonstrated. And I'm looking forward to talking about all of this at length in the next episode. 
Yeah, there's a huge amount to dig into here. I only want to make one real brief comment here, which is that Harlow also discovered or, or examined the importance of maternal influence in early childhood development. And we've seen in this story that both Diane and Nicholas have real problems with their mothers, and that could have something to do with why they're disturbed to, to the degree that they are. It's not clear evidence, but it's worth pointing out. And Ignacio has had no, almost no hu- human contact growing up. And, and you're absolutely right then to point out that Nicholas behaves like one of the monkeys that Nicholas himself has killed. Nicholas is chattering and following Ignacio around. And Ignacio warming up to Nicholas and helping Nicholas survive in some way is beneficial for Ignacio's understanding of how people behave in societies. The connection between Harlow's study and Christianity, I think we'll just have to wait for the discussion. But I will say that I'm reminded of the beginning of Matthew 18, where Christ condemns and promises punishment, including drowning in the sea, to those who hurt children. The children whose lowliness in society represents and symbolizes those who are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So there's just some food for thought that hopefully will tide people over till we get to the discussion. Yeah, it's going to be a big discussion episode. I feel like this episode in particular, we're just teasing that. But of course, we are approaching the end here, right? All of these storylines, all these strands are coming together. Well, the next morning, Ignacio comes to Nicholas to say goodbye. He's recovered now, or at least he's recovered enough to go to a a regular hospital and continue rehabilitating. And his demeanor is different now, though he still speaks about himself in the third person. He might take that with him his whole life, I guess. He's let his fire run out, and that might actually be a metaphor, but he has left the stuff he got from the Dead Sea God on the beach for Nicholas to use to start his own fire if he wants to. And we are very near the end of this story now. And when Nicholas goes to Ignacio's camp, he finds Diane there, dead. Her chest has been burned away by a massive nuclear welder that Ignacio took from the repair robot at the bottom of the ocean. And Ignacio has murdered her. And Dr. Island set the whole thing up. And Dr. Island does not deny this. In fact, he seems almost proud of his accomplishment. He reminds Nicholas that killing the the monkey was part of Nicholas's own step towards recovery while he's been here. And the same is true for Ignacio's murder of Diane. He says that Ignacio was frightened by women, but now that he's carried out certain fantasies, he finds those fantasies bitter and he knows that women are weak, not some sort of strange threat to him. Nicholas is enraged by this. He cared about Diane. He wanted to save her as a type of repentance for killing Maya But instead, he was just a tool of Diane's death. So the exact opposite of everything he wanted has come to pass. And Nicholas's emotions begin to alter the weather until there is a terrifying storm. And Nicholas says that he is going to use his emotions to make a storm so bad that he will shake the satellite until Dr. Island's computer, which is tethered to the outside of the satellite, will snap away and be destroyed He's going to kill Dr. Island. He's going to take vengeance on Dr. Island for this. But in the end, that doesn't work. Nicholas's anger subsides, and so does the storm. And Nicholas picks up the nuclear welder, and he's prepared to do some sort of violence with it. And and I think maybe it's kill himself, though I'm looking forward to seeing what you think about that. But Dr. Island has brought the maintenance robot up from the ocean, and, and this robot is able to take the welder from Nicholas before he's able to do anything. And he explains that although Nicholas is upset about Diane's death, the whole thing was part of his plan to heal everyone. 
Diane really only wanted to die, and by giving her that in a useful way, he has healed Ignacio, who really is someone important. And this death, the the death of Dr. Island, he calls it, is a type of gift. And now that Nicholas, too, is on his way to recovery, Dr. Island is going to introduce new patients to this bit of beach to continue helping Nicholas, but also so that Nicholas can help people who are worse off than he is. Nicholas doesn't take any of this well. I don't think I would either. In fact, I'm not as a reader, I'll say. And in a really heartbreaking moment, he whispers, this isn't ending the way I thought. Nothing ever turns out right. And then he holds his head against his knees and just rocks back and forth for a long time, not even aware of the rain that is falling on him. After a while, he looks up again, and there is something new about his face. And then Dr. Island speaks through the waves. Nicholas is gone. The personality that controlled the right part of the body and the speech and decision-making functions is gone. And now the left side of this brain is dominant, and this boy will go by Kenneth, and it will be his job to make sure that Nicholas never returns. Kenneth nods in understanding and begins to collect sticks for the fire that he's going to build. And now the story comes to a close with the waves of Dr. Island chanting a haiku. Seas are wild tonight, stretching over Sado Island, silent clouds of stars. And the last line of the story is, there was no reply. The ending of this story is really heartbreaking, and, and we'll talk about its meaning more fully in the discussion. There are just a few things I want to address before we close out our show today. First, the haiku here is by Matsuo Basho, who was a 17th century Japanese poet and master of the haiku. I know less about what to do with this reference than the others in the story, so I think we'll save what's going on here with this reference for the discussion. I want to return, though, to the Promethean myth that is taking place in this story. Nicholas is given the gift of fire from the Promethean character in this story, and Nicholas abuses it immediately, and it's taken away from him. He's just not ready for it. He's not ready to wield fire at this point in his life, not, not until Nicholas goes away. And because of the nature of the character of Dr. Island, whether he's done something good or horrible— I'm confused as to whether this is about Nicholas's journey towards humanity or if he's fallen away from it somehow. We'll have plenty of time to talk about that. But we also learned that Poseidon, the legged god, didn't die, that it was just important for Ignacio to believe that he overcame a god and stole fire, that Ignacio was embodying and living this myth. And this makes me genuinely concerned about the type of person Ignacio is supposed to be for humanity, what journey of awakening he will take them on. There's also a line here that really, uh, I think, speaks to our ongoing saga of of the story of Nicholas and Maya here. And, And I'd like to take a moment to highlight it. The line is this, I didn't kill you after all, did I? And Nicholas speaks this after cycling through images in his mind of Diane and Maya and sister Carmela. I think, Glenn, you and I have read this death of Maya very differently. And I think this is the moment in my reading of Nicholas letting go of the guilt of his inability to save her, that he is not and has not been in a place where he could help anyone, that he's needed the help of others. But this line can be interpreted in so many different ways. He could be saying it to Dr. Island. And finally, in the same way I'm concerned about what type of person Ignacio will be for the world, 
I'm not sure that muting Nicholas was the best for Nicholas or for the world, but all of these thoughts, well, I think we'll have to wait for the discussion. And on that note, that's going to close out this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha, And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Join us on the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of this section of the death of Dr. Island. We are going to be off for the holiday, but we will return on January 7th with our last episode on this story. But until then, we greet you and say Merry Christmas. <laughs>